Welcome to Wisdom.mba, a podcast where I interview business school students, professors, and alums, as well as industry thought leaders who look to share wisdom focusing on the hard lessons learned through different career and business endeavors and share insights into how you can put a business school education to best use. In this episode, I interview Eddie Cohen, who is the founder of Walden, a brand that designs, engineers, and manufactures products for meditation. Eddie's founder journey started after a 10-day meditation retreat. As a product designer who worked at Apple, he discovered that the products at the retreat lack inspiring aesthetics. With Walden, Eddie wants to become Nike for the mind, providing customers with beautiful and thoughtfully designed products to promote a mindful lifestyle. Eddie and I discuss his founder journey, why he decided to manufacture products in the United States, the post-COVID health and wellness boom, and how he manages to finance inventory for his growing product assortment. He also provides insights for how entrepreneurs can use meditation for dealing with the inevitable stresses of building a company. If you love a good founder story from someone who is truly living their passion, then I think you'll enjoy this episode. Please note, Eddie is a builder and a doer. You know, for this episode, he called in from his design studio in Brooklyn while he was multitasking. So the audio levels and background noises may be a bit distracting at times. But despite that, I think there's a lot of great wisdom in this episode. Eddie, I appreciate you uh, making time to join the podcast. So you have an amazing Instagram handle at EC. The only other entrepreneur that I follow with as good of a handle is GC, Garrett Camp, the founder of Uber. Uh, so you're an esteemed company. How did you get that handle? Uh, were you like an early beta? Uh, did you know the founder or were you just early access on Instagram? So I, growing up, I was very um, interested in technology and startups. And I had an iPhone in high school. And I remember I read a TechCrunch article that Instagram launched and in class, like downloaded the app and got the name EC. Didn't even think about it um, and like started posting a little bit. And then just was like, ah, <laughs> I don't really think Instagram's going to be a thing. <laughs> like deleted it. And then out of nowhere, it just took off. And I fortunately had uh, at EC, I just got lucky. I was like the 400th user of Instagram. It's like domain squatting where you got in there early. So anyone listening, every once in a while, it's good. It's all right to bring out your phone in class to make sure that you just lock into that very good real estate. But you also love photography as well. So is that the reason you were also interested in it? Yes, absolutely. When it first launched? Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I, I got very lucky with the handle. It's great to have at PC. People are like very impressed by that for some reason. Well, I'm sure people reach out to you all the time and they want to purchase it from you. It's like in Saudi Arabia, those like uh, license plates that are like low numbers go for like hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. So uh, I'm sure you could sell, resell that um, at a hefty rate. So like Garrett Camp, uh, you're also a burner. Uh, how was Burning Man this year? Uh, yes, I, I've been to Burning Man seven times um, so far. It was amazing. Every year is amazing. Uh, I I don't build. I have not built an art car or have made an ex exhibition or a piece. Um, generally, just go to explore, to to meet people, to hang out with friends, and uh, to just like just to mark time going by. The last time I was at Burning Man, so I went this year, and then the previous time was 2019, right before I got married. And so it was kind of interesting to be there from that like pre-COVID, pre-marriage to post-COVID, happily married, you know? 
Is there any sort of one story that's really stuck out to you, or is it a, is it one of those situations where what happens at Burning Man stains at Burning Man? The, the thing is with Burning Man, there's really no specific story. Like it's just kind of a way of being for a week of the year. Um, it's kind of hard to describe. Um, I will say that one thing that I've been doing for the past three or four times, I, I carry around a Hasselblad 500CM. It's a medium format film camera. And I take portraits of, of people on the playa and I get their email address and I send it to them like two months later after I develop it. And it's just like so interesting because I'll send it to like somebody and they'll be at work and I'll just get this email from this random stranger like, hey, your portrait from Burning Man. And uh, it's just like, uh, it's just a really fun, fun gift to give to people that, that I found enjoyable. And I guess it's got to be good to be in Brooklyn so you can actually, there's enough places around that will develop medium format um, film. Most of the places here have all shut down in North Carolina because I used to carry around, not a Hasselblad, but um, forget the name of it, but um, it was very hard to find a place to develop medium format in the digital era. Yeah, there's actually a place down the block from our studio in Greenpoint that, that develops medium format. It's just, it's just tough to scan it. Like I had not found a good solution for scanning. So on my last podcast, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Sauna House. We talked about the post-COVID health and wellness boom and the increasing demand for sauna and cold therapy. According to the World Health Organization, instances of anxiety and depression worldwide have increased 25% in 2020. So you started Walden in 2017 prior to the pandemic, but you've seen an increase in sales during and after the pandemic. So, you know, the global meditation market is growing at a rate of almost 20% per year, similar to the sauna and cold plunge therapy. So do you feel that is mindful meditation a growing fad in the United States fueled by the pandemic or does it have a, you know, lasting staying power? So I think that uh, due to the pandemic, mental health has just become part of the zeitgeist. Folks are talking about it from all walks of life and it's, it's an extremely important topic as it should be. Um, I think that the COVID lockdowns exasperated a lot of the issues and people sought various remedies like talk therapy, uh, psychedelic experiences like the ketamine treatments, uh, and mindful meditation. I generally believe that the, the industry like meditation has staying power to me it's it's a it's a type of practice that just makes people's lives better it's useful in navigating the world and optimizing and just being a happy uh individual in the world uh look as people get away from the house and have to commute to their offices the time that they have that they're able to dedicate to meditation goes down, just becomes harder to do that. So I'm sure we'll see some like reduction in number of minutes or hours people are meditating per day. But generally I believe that on the whole, as mental health becomes more of uh, more part of the zeitgeist and more accessible and relatable and normal, I think that meditation will continue to pick up as a practice and eventually will be as synonymous as jogging. Like, I, I just think everyone in the world, if you have a mind, you should meditate. 
I love that. Do you feel like the question I had for Andrew from Sauna House is there's different bathing practices. Like the Japanese onsen is very different from a Russian banya and, you know, a German style of sauna cold plunge is very different from Finnish. Do you feel that in America there will be like an Americanized version of meditation or do you think that there will be sort of one practice that will become more conducive to a U.S. audience than others? I mean, look, I'm a little, so I have like a pretty controversial opinions here. So I, I actually generally think that the American form of meditation are generally app-based. Like if you just look at the scale of apps like Calm, Headspace, the Waking Up app, they're generally like more in the Vipassana mindfulness area. Um, there's obviously nuance there because it depends on what you're looking for. But by and large, like I, I feel that the American quote unquote style of meditation will generally resemble these apps just because the scale that they have, um, like there is no real, I mean, look, there are, there are segments of meditation history in the U S but nothing comes close to the scale of these apps. And so I think that like, Where, where, where I like, I, I'm kind of conflicted is I think the apps are amazing in onboarding people to meditation. And I think that the more accessible you can make the content, the better. Uh, on the other hand, I think that the issue is a lot of these apps, they have a subscription business model where they make money when people continue to use them. And so they're not trying to like train people to not use the apps, right? They're trying to train, tra train, train people to be dependent on the app so that they continue to subscribe. Um, and so it's kind of like my conflict with, with the, the apps. Um, ideally, there, there will be an app that is like, hey, follow this for a month, right? By the end of the month, you will understand meditation technique and practice. And then whenever you're veering, maybe once a month, do a refresher course. Uh, but like a transformative moment for me was I went on, a, I, I had been using Headspace um, and I tried Transdelta meditation and they were good, but it didn't really stick and it didn't really affect me profoundly. So I went on a 10 day silent meditation retreat that was Vipassana and it was totally transformative. Uh, and that kind of gave me the tools to continue to meditate throughout my life. Yeah, for me, it almost, I don't use any of the apps, Calm or Headspace, and it feels like a little bit of a contradiction where, you know, one of the key KPIs for any app is is user retention. And to get people to get back into the app, you got to send them an SMS notification um, and keep their eyes on the screen. So I'm wondering if there's almost like, hey, it's a mindfulness foot in the door scale but then an affiliate program or some way to get some people off the app and into, you know, a more focused retreat like you experience. I guess time will tell, but it also doesn't feel like a very controversial opinion. Like to me, it seems almost intuitive that the idea of an app and mindful meditation are at odds with one another. Are you, where are you feeling or where are you getting the feedback that it's a controversial opinion? I think that if someone that worked at Calm heard me speak about this, they would take the other side and just say that, yeah, I, I mean, they would obviously advocate for a daily guided practice. 
I've actually spoken to various people at some of these companies that, that, are, that are executives. And uh, it's funny because like off the record, they agree with me and have stated that like they've piloted programs like I described before and like they were very effective. But again, it was like bad for retention. And so they ultimately took a different route. I want to go forward by going backwards again a little bit. We, speaking of cold plunges, you know, you had mentioned uh, that I'm just uh, paraphrasing you here. It's always been a dream of ours to design a cold plunge. And so we did. Uh, we've been practicing cold immersion for years now, mindfully sitting in 46 degree Fahrenheit water for prolonged periods of time open water, winter swimming, and continuous hot and cold rotations. So there are a number of cold plunges on the market. Um, you know, what would make a Walden cold plunge different? How Can you give us any insight on how you would design one better? Yeah, totally. Um, we actually have images on our website, walden.us, um, which folks can go check out. So, yeah, again, we've been practicing just a cold water immersion for years now. I think around 10 years um, and have got to come to appreciate it for my birthday. I organized a polar plunge with uh, my closest friends in uh, Coney Island, the ocean in February. And so like generally it's, it's amazing to see the cold plunge market explode. Uh, the reason why we, we, we actually designed one is we were just uninspired by the industrial design of all of them. They, they just felt like, like just, they just didn't feel aesthetically uh, interesting or pleasing or just like to fit into a space. It, it was either like a refrigerator that was on its side and filled with cold water and like a massive chilling unit or like a wood box. And they, they just generally didn't fit with like high-end homes or hotels. And um, we basically said like if we were to design a cold plunge, what would that look like? What would it feel like? And we took reference from uh, sort of like minimalist sculptors like Donald Judd and came up with uh, a design that's pretty brutalist, that honors materials, uh, uses like wax aluminum with a rotor molded plastic insert and a concealed chilling unit um, and have designed it so that it's sort of easy to get into, easy to get out, looks great in the home when it's not being used uh, and where chatting with various partners about making this a reality while, because we're just mindful that like it is a whole thing to make a cold plunge and bring it to market. It's like, it's pretty easy to make the design. It's really hard to actually make it, ship it, engineer it, et cetera. Been selling your existing products to the Four Seasons, the Mandarin Orient, the Ritz Carlton, um, you know, really high end hotels, like you had mentioned, do you feel that cold plunges and meditation benches and mats will be, you know, part of just the hotel layout for these high-end hotels? And is that, is that the reason that you're starting to see an increase in sales, um, you know, on the B2B side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that like all high, I think all hotels will have sort of like wellness facilities, you know, caveat obviously there will be hotels that don't have them um but i do think that sauna cold plunge will be table stakes for hotels with spas i think that having meditation areas either in room or in a studio will be table stakes um and we're seeing the market react to that like we are working with the top hotels in the world to build meditation spaces 
and wellness spaces at their hotels. And we work with them in a variety of capacities. So we'll work with them to develop a meditation area in room, which includes custom created content for uh, that hotel. So we do that with the Four Seasons in uh, Beverly Hills, where we have the cushion and we have some guidance where we uh, walk people through meditations. And then we also sell to uh, studio like hotels for their studios, like the Six Senses globally, we're partners with them. And uh, one example, the hotel in Ibiza, when guests check in, they sit and meditate on our cushions. And so it's really interesting to see uh, a lot of these hotels effectively onboard people to meditation and provide the tools for people to have their own practice while they're, tra- while they're traveling. So was that intentional or did you, did they reach out to you and you just saw this market need and you quickly pivoted and executed on it? Or did you always have a, when you, as part of your founder story, we're like, this, this is going to be a need for these high end um, hotels. You know, it was, it was, it happened organically. Um, the, the initial idea and like goal was to create effectively Nike for the mind and an aspirational brand around mindfulness. Uh, the fact that hospitality has grown to include meditation and wellness offerings has been such a blessing and um, we've basically created a whole program to cater to these customers. So you talked a little bit about your 10 day silent meditation treats uh, retreat. Um, so that's really your founder story. Were you silent for the full 10 days or did you get a break? You actually can speak to the teacher about your experience, uh, once a day. Initially, it was pretty tough to not speak, but by the third, fourth day, you didn't really want to talk. And by the end of it, just kind of enjoyed being in silence and connecting with people non-verbally, if that makes sense. And how would you do that? Is it just hand signals? Is it nodding your head? Like there's just a lot of, you know, visual cues? No, it's just being near people. I mean, it's not actually communicating with them. It's just experiencing something with other people without communicating to them, without speaking to them, uh, and just like energetically connecting to other people without like and we've not- signaling. Like, yeah. Well, we've evolved to have a lot of those unspoken cues, and I bet – when you no longer talk, you can fall back in and rely on those, maybe some pheromones, um, but also just these senses that we've had that have been well-tuned over eons that we can sort of get a vibe from somebody without saying anything. Did you notice that at all? 100%. I mean, the, the like with... Silent meditation retreats, the idea is to reduce the amount of stimuli that one is consuming, right? So there's no reading, there's no writing, there's no speaking, no watching TV, listening to music, etc. And as a result, you just get extra sensitive to the environment that you're in. So you pick up on people's energies very, very acutely. Um, and that that's kind of what I was describing before. And so... How did that experience then shape um, Walden? 
was that the catalyst? It was, yeah, it was definitely the catalyst. Um, it's interesting because at the time when I first went, I was in college and all of my contemporaries were going away on like winter vacation to various like you know, exotic places. And um, I don't know what compelled me to be like, I'm, I'm going to say no, I'm just going to 10 day saddle meditation retreat. Uh, but it was totally transformative. I mean, I think I think the specific things that were transformative were number one, like helped reinforce the power of consistent and daily meditation in my life. Most importantly, number two, while being there, again, like you're extra sensitive to your environment and to people. And what I noticed was that the environment at the retreat was not very inspiring. And then the tools that people were using, again, were like, they were almost second, like, it didn't feel like there was much thought put into that, right? The cushions were like, kind of decaying. I mean, like they were fine and they were free and it was great. And it, but they were just like not inspiring um, or even comfortable. They were like, there's a lot of pain as I was meditating, thinking about it. And so I kind of just made a note like, hey, it would be interesting to design a retreat that was actually like really well done, um, that felt great to be around, um, that catered to a wide array of folks. I mean, the one I went to specifically at the time I was 20 and I was one of three people under 30. You know, everyone else was in their like 50. 40s to 70s um, and it just felt that over time more young people would get into it uh, and I, I just had this idea that hey like the someone should design a retreat that spoke to a wide array of folks and was like very thoughtful around that experience and then just on a practical level it's like well I also I would love to design tools for meditation because at the time, like it became such an important part of my life and the products again were inspiring and the brands were inspiring. Uh, and it just didn't make sense to me that things like running had and yoga, which I did fairly, I guess, I, I guess frequently like once a week um, had these like insanely inspiring brands and great product, but something I did every day, like meditation didn't have that. And so that was kind of the catalyst for the rent. Yeah, you saw the opportunity there and the aesthetic didn't didn't live up to your expectations. Now, from an aesthetic standpoint, it looks very Japanese Zen minimalist. And one posture in particular, you know, Saiza practiced by Japanese Zazen meditation, you know, your white ash meditation bench, you essentially sit in that posture. So can you tell us a little bit more about your current meditation practice? You mentioned it. How long are you doing it daily? Is it Jap Japanese Zen? Um, just talk us a little bit more how your current meditation practice also dictates the aesthetic for your products. Totally. So I feel like there are several parts of this. I'll just take the questions in sequence. Um, we actually internally, one of our core design principles uh, is brutal zen. We want our products to uh, really be an exercise in simplicity and purity of form. 
Uh, and uh, yes, we are inspired by Zen minimalism, uh, which like carries through to the entire brand. Uh, and my partner, Calvin, he's a creative director, uh, helps set that, that vision and, and that aesthetic. Um, in terms of the posture, so yes, you know, Saiza uh, is a Japanese posture. Um, I tip, yeah, and so the, the, the bench is for practicing Saiza, right? Like that's just what it's meant for. Um, I use that in particular when meditating. Um, I just find it more comfortable, even though my hips are pretty flexible. Uh, I, I enjoy the, the support that the bench gives me. It's way more comfortable for me. We actually, like in, my, in the meditation retreat, I used a bench. And so when we were starting the company, it was interesting because we started with cushion, but we've always wanted to design a bench. Uh, and so it was really amazing to be able to come out with that bench earlier this year and just see folks love it. And we sold out of our first batch. Uh, we're bringing in a bunch more uh, that's both white oak and we're actually using uh, white ash for, and we're staining it black for our second offering. Um, and then in terms of my, my meditation practice, so I, uh, I, I sit once or twice a day between 20 and 40 minutes. Um, I generally sit in Siza position. Um, sometimes I'll actually use a cushion and then just sit in like Burmese. Uh, and I'll practice Vipassana and I'll practice Transcendental Meditation or Vedic Meditation, um, depending on like how I'm feeling in, in a given time. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my, my practice. Can you do full lotus? No, I can't. <laughs> I'm I'm six foot one, like 230 pounds and I've never been able to cross my legs effectively. So I'm a big fan of bench sitting Siza. I actually did um, some Taoist meditation where you just sit in a chair. It's quite lovely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. We're actually designing a chair right now. Great. I like, I love the, the black, black, uh, of the ash meditation bench sounds very cool. And I love, I really like brutal Zen. I have a love hate relationship, honestly, with brutalism for anyone who doesn't know. I mean, Toronto, Montreal, like Toronto, where I grew up in this, like in the seventies, I feel like concrete was cheap. And so like so much of Toronto architecture that was modern at the time is all brutalism. It is, you know, if you look it up, it's, you know, a French word for benton brut, uh, which is basically raw concrete. And I think if you've ever watched Loki um, and it's just administrative buildings and concrete sort of Eastern European, it's got sort of this like Soviet aesthetic. So I'm relying on you guys to just sort of like pull the greatness out of brutalism coupled with Zen to have something beautiful because a lot of the, the brutalist uh, famous architectural landmarks in Toronto are very much love or hate. I, I feel like you like most people fall on one side or the other. Maybe that's just me though. You got you guys are the experts. That's it's just more my taste. Yeah, I mean we we yeah, we uh 
you know, it's interesting because we simultaneously want, like, we believe in brutalism as an aesthetic. Um, we also make products for comfort, right? Like we make the most comfortable meditation CD products in the world. And so to simultaneously have like a sort of brutalist aesthetic, which historically has been like, yeah, like concrete structures that don't look very comfortable. Um, and pairing that with a functional product that is actually extremely comfortable is, is an interesting like uh, paradox. And I love the paradox. I mean, what my Taoist philosophy professor in college, they talked about uh, this notion of hard and white. And there were sort of two conflicting terms where if you can find like a, a stone that's both that's hard and white, you know, you would naturally associate white with soft clouds, but it's also hard. So I think that there's a real sort of beautiful design aesthetic if you can combine conflicting terms and sort of like this in this sort of harmony which you guys have done so how is how has meditation made you a better entrepreneur i mean you got to go through a lot of stress and have you found that it's just giving you the tools to be able to deal with the hardships that you've naturally faced as an entrepreneur uh yeah absolutely i think you know what's interesting with meditation is that when you practice, you're training the way that you respond to feelings and emotions. And you recognize that if you are anxious about something or you are stressed, you recognize that that is a feeling and it is not necessarily based in any sort of reality, right? Like if you're anxious, you can control how you respond to that anxiety. So now when I'm anxious, like I, I said, I recognize that anxiety. I recognize that stress and I look at it and I try to simultaneously recognize that as a sensation. So just like cold water initially is shocking and painful. It's actually, when you look at it, it's a, just a sensation and we assign pain and we assign our response to that. Like for folks that, they want to get out of cold water immediately. They're kind of like you're in gear and you're just like following your, your natural impulse. Right. But if you, you, know, you push the clutch and you engage neutral, you actually look at it and you think like, huh, that's an interesting sensation. And over time, as you practice that, you don't actually correlate that sensation with, negative reactions, right? Like if I'm anxious, I will look at that anxiety or I'm stressed. I will look at that stress and I will try to understand where it's coming from. Why do I feel this way right now? Is there anything I can do about it in the immediate term? And like in many cases, the answer is like, yeah, you know, it's really stressful running a, a company and that's just the nature of what I'm doing. And it's okay to, to feel that, right? Like we, we, we have, employees that uh, rely on the business for their life. And we, 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 didn't, we didn't raise venture capital. And so managing cash flow is like a thing that I think about a lot. And like, that is just a natural thing to think about, right? It's natural to be stressed and anxious about that. Um, and the practice of meditation has helped me look at that and look at it in a way that doesn't assign negative response, like reactions to that. Right, like, okay, cool, I'm anxious. I'm not gonna like lie in bed all day because 
I just don't feel great. Right? I'll look at I'll look at that feeling. I'll understand. I'll, I'll try to look at it objectively and and see where it's coming from and and embrace it and uh, not assign negative reactions to it. So in that case, it has been very helpful for me. Now, for entrepreneurs listening that want to get into meditation, what advice would you have for them? Uh, my advice would be to just sit, to, to buy a cushion <laughs> or a bench, um, and to just sit every day and commit to a certain time and just stay there. And you'll have impulses to write an idea down or something you have to do. But just recognize that, notate it, and just focus on the breath. I remember, like, I once went to one of my meditation teachers and I said, uh, I said, look, sometimes I'm meditating and I have a great idea. And I just want to write down the idea because I'll, I'll forget about it if not. Like, you know, can I do that? The teacher said, uh, if it's a really good idea, I'll come back to you. <laughs> Don't disrupt the meditation. Be like, the, the point is to see the idea, look at it, and then go back to the breath and move on. And so that, that kind of hit me, uh, hit me pretty hard. I've had those, man. I've had those few times where I'm like, man, this is great. And if I don't write it down, it's gone forever. So I challenge that assertion from whoever said that to you, to be honest. I need a, I carry notepads with me at all times. And if it's a breakthrough idea, I need to write it down. Fun meditation me question. What? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. And it was tough for me to, yeah, I mean, it was tough for me to not write med ideas during meditation. Um, but I like, yeah, it just, I, I found that the really good ideas come back to me. Well, I like this. There's the notion of the platonic realm of ideas in that, like, if you get into a flow state, that's where true creativity comes from. And so I would make the argument that if you have a solid meditation practice and if you can get deep into that platonic realm, those are the best ideas. And so you need to write them down. Like I, I, in the, I have like the number of ideas that I've had in the shower and I literally like jump out and have to write them down because my mind is in a calm state. Um, so maybe the best ideas do come from a meditative state. Um, I did want to get to a fun question related to meditation. What's the true essence of suffering? Um, I'm going to answer in a very Buddhist way. I think it's craving. I think that like suffering is want like continually wanting something, right? Like if you just look at the human condition, we always want more, right? We, we eat a donut, the donut's delicious. The minute we finish the donut, we want another one, right? And so over time, like the craving is the thing that leads to suffering, which right? is always wanting more and not being able to, to sort of like scratch the itch. You know, like there's another, another interesting thing when, when you're meditating and you want to, you have an itch and you want to scratch the itch. You scratch it, right? Then another itch comes up. And you scratch that, and another itch, and you know this goes on in perpetuity. Whereas if you just look at the itch, 
and then you recognize the itch, you acknowledge it, and you move back down to the breath, you don't actually feel the urge to scratch it. And I think that, like, scratching is suffering, right? Because we're, we're continually uh, wanting to scratch that itch that, can, that keeps popping up. And so just by, like, looking at that and not responding to it, you're practicing... You're practicing the art of trying to minimize suffering. But from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I want my businesses to be successful. I crave high growth numbers. And a lot of suffering has been, hey, my numbers aren't to the point that I want them to be. This startup is taking a lot longer to be successful than I was hoping. Have you had to sort of take a slower approach to growth? Or do you not intentionally have that sort of craving or want to be like an overnight success with Walden? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I've had, to, I, I am an impatient person, right? I want to grow fast um, and I want to do everything all at once. And I've had to learn patience. I've had to learn laying a brick every single day and compounded growth and, you know, just keep doing it. Um, I think I've learned to be way more patient. And I think that a part of, obviously meditation helps with that. But I, I think that like just, I feel so fortunate to be able to work on Walden it's literally my dream, right? To make these products that they're amazing products and they're in a field that I care about. And the fact that the world is like waking up to it is, is it's, it's a blessing. Um, because of that, I'm able to be more patient and I'm able to recognize and look a bit more long-term. I definitely get super stressed when there are days where we have very low sales and it's like, what's going on, you know, let's talk about it, this and that. And like, I, you know, I want to grow faster and whatnot. Um, but we operate in a really lean fashion and there's always been a focus to get the cash flow positivity so that we can just continue to do what we do. And it's a balance of like, you know, managing growth with where, like what the business wants and needs right away. And like making the deliberate decision to not raise venture capital so that we can give the business what it needs and continue to do what we want to do uh, and continue to make products that folks love. I'm glad you brought up financing. And so you have a lot, you have a product that's basically inventory. How are you handling inventory financing? Um, Like, are you doing it through pre-orders? If you didn't raise money, I mean, one of our biggest challenges for our tea company is that we need to order inventory from China and there's, you know, minimum order quantities. So I have to have, you know, $150,000 to $200,000 on hand to be able to order product to get it on a sea freight to you know, the United States. So how are, you, how are you funding it? Is it mostly through pre-orders uh, with existing customers? So just walk us through that. So that's a great question. So if you look at the Walden's business lines, we have like, let's say there's Walden seating, which is the cushion and the bench. There's Walden aroma. We have 
bunch of aromatherapy products that's generally like machine metal, uh, ceramic. And then we have apparel. We're coming out with time and sound categories. Um, but the, the first three I mentioned are, are our big three. Specifically, like our biggest business right now is the cushion. And we need the cushions in Brooklyn. Um, so, we'll, like, we, we are able to actually uh, order as needed. And we have a very efficient use of capital with the cushion. The other products, like the benches and the machine metal products, are made in Asia. Um, I can go into why after, but just after like evaluating dairy, like we, we like to do everything in the US, but we're not able to find vendors that can do hit the quality we need at the price we need. Um, and so like that actually becomes a bit more tricky for how to finance it. Um, we we generally like like to do pre-orders for some of the very expensive products to make, like you, you, you mentioned the bench. You know, we have to order a bunch of them at a time and allocate the cash and the cash payback cycle. It just takes a while because by the time we get the bench and inventory, it's like six months after the PO and we just, you know, we have to pay in advance, uh, maybe six to eight months. Just it takes a while to make these things. Um, and so we like to fund them with pre-orders. Um, but then once after that, the pre-order, like we have that kind of in a cycle where it's under punishment and we're able to continue to make them. Um, what we also do is, like, where we start with a lot of small experiments, right? So there are certain products, like the Lava Rock Essential Oil Diffuser, that we will, like, just launch and see how people like it, right? We'll buy 100 units, and we'll pay a lot of money per unit. And we'll just be like super scrappy and launch the product and see how people like it. And then if there is like demand for the thing, and people love it, and we love it, we'll double down and we will buy a lot more inventory. Uh, and yeah, financing it is tricky. I mean, basically all free cash flow goes into fund funding inventory. Um, it's, it's something I think about all the time. I mean, there are debt options, but the debt is pretty expensive, right? Like, you know, there's like Shopify type companies that offer debt, but like they're super, super expensive. Um, and so I haven't found a really good solution for it yet. Yeah, we've also evaluated inventory financing and there's plenty out there. And to your point, like the interest rates are high. I do like this idea of basically doing a small limited test to sort of figure out what your cost per acquisition is, what the conversion rate looks like, and maybe air freighting those products uh, to run the tests. And that's also easier when they're smaller products and you could probably air freight them. And so the design studio in Brooklyn, so you guys are designing products, but you're also manufacturing them there as well? Or is it a third-party like textile company that's doing the um, the pillows? Yeah. So, again, we, we design – like one of the things that people don't actually know about Walden is that every product that we sell is a custom design product. Like there are other people – companies in the industry that – they effectively like white label existing things from factories. Uh, but we literally design everything from scratch and we have to create supply chains for each particular item. Uh, and we do that because we love it. 
right? Like we love making product. So the way that we actually manage um, production is we work very closely. So for the cushion specifically, we work very closely with a factory in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. Uh, it's called NY Ortho. Uh, they are a cut and sew factory. Actually, it's called the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Cut and Sew Factory uh, in the Navy Yards. And uh, we work very closely with uh, the, the proprietors of the facility. It's a, it's a man named Michael. He's an amazing partner become a good friend and good supporter and is anything that we, any idea that I come to him with, he is a supporter and will redesign his, their, I guess their assembly line to do it. So as an example, we came to them with this idea for a rope, right? We wanted to make a heavyweight home rope for meditation. And we basically worked in collaboration to figure out how we can actually design the pattern, the weight, et cetera, so that it's the highest quality it could be. Um, and so the, the benefit of that is like the factory is literally 10 minutes away from our design studio. And so we are in the factory constantly looking at quality, looking at inventory, coming up with new ideas, figuring out how we can improve the product. Um, and it's been an amazing uh, cycle of innovation and evolution from where we started to where we are today of just making it continually better. And we're only able to do that because the factory is right here, right? Yeah, so you can iterate, you can do quality control, you can work with their team. And then also from an economic standpoint, because you're designing everything from scratch and it's leveraging your expertise and your team's expertise, you can command a higher price point that can justify onshoring the manufacturing process. And then, yeah, I mean, go yeah, go for it. Well, this, and then the other thing too is that you can also just have that constant feedback loop to iterate and to ensure that the quality is up to the 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 standards. I mean, this is really these are high end products, and you know people are willing to pay for it. But and, and I think you can justify that pr price point with the craftsmanship. Uh, totally. So it's, yeah, like it's interesting because with the cushions, so we actually design and create the cushion in a mill specific for our use case, like. Think at this point where the only buyer of this fabric in the world, um, which is really exciting. We work directly with the mill like, to, to continually evolve the fabric. Um, and where it gets interesting is like, it's really complicated and expensive to ship eight pounds of uh, basically like a byproduct. You know, buckwheat hull is a byproduct uh, across the country, across the world. Like it's just expensive and uh, there are actually a lot of weird, just a lot of weird issues of buying uh, buckwheat hull from different countries. Like uh, if you read some Amazon reviews, there are like bugs in the buckwheat. It's like, uh, it just, we buy our buckwheat from a farm in upstate New York um, and we control that whole cycle. And um, we're actually able to be extremely efficient with uh, transportation and shipping. And uh, we, we, we just like that because our carbon footprint is way lower. We're able to like, Again, like make things as needed, scale up and down, um, and more like most importantly, we can control the production process and we can make sure that it is of the highest quality. 
Yeah, definitely. Now, as someone who studied product design, you know, working at Apple must have been a dream job for you. So was that hard leaving the corporate world to become an entrepreneur? Uh, so it's a great question. Um, you know, growing up, as I mentioned earlier, like I was just a huge Apple fanboy. And like as an example, I would leave like my elementary school class to watch uh, the Apple keynotes in like the library, you know. Um, and so getting a job at Apple was a dream come true. It was, it was like I was just through the moon. And the first three months were amazing, and I learned a ton. I met a ton of great people. I mean, that continued throughout the entire experience. Um, but it just got to a point where I felt that there was a machine at Apple that did things a certain way. And the idea, like being at the company, you want to pr propagate that machine, right? You want to continue to do things the way they're done. There are a lot of learnings, et cetera. And it just felt to me that my purpose is not to propagate that, right? Like, you know, I looked up to Steve Jobs and I don't think that Steve Jobs would work at Apple if he was, you know, 25, right? Um, and so I kind of had that, like, I, I, just, I just felt that my creative energy will be better off spent making something that wouldn't exist without me being there. Um, and like having that insight was like pretty, pretty monumental. Um, and really, really hard, right? Because it was like this dream job, this dream opportunity. You know, I love the people that I worked with. I was learning a ton. Um, but ultimately that insight of like, I strongly believe that like my, pur like my purpose in life, I actually, it's, it's a big source of meaning for me is to create things that don't exist and wouldn't exist without me. Um, and I felt that like Walden was a really core manifestation of that idea. Now, was that source of meaning something that you had really had from a young age, or did you realize that you had to sort of, lack of a better term, <laughs> scratch that itch, um, you know, after working at Apple? Uh, you know, I've, I've always kind of had it. I mean, it's been like a, it, it had been a recurring thought that I've been like thinking through for years. I mean, I really went deep into like exploring the mind and just trying to understand like, what would be fulfilling for me as an individual in my life. Um, but, you know, like, there's a difference between like knowing it or like having that thought and then actually having the confidence to do it. I think that I didn't have the confidence to do it until I was at Apple. And I realized that like, I can, do, I, you know, I can build, I can, I can build a mat, like a, a company that, is has the, the level i mean obviously it's like clearly not the case like, like apple had they, they do incredible work but like i realized that i can aspire to build a company that can actually emulate that level of quality of work and uh, design a new culture that reflects some of my values and like create products in different spaces right oh, i was just gonna say everybody has that sort of daydream as you're driving into the office and thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, but there's a very, very small percentage of people that actually have the confidence to go ahead and do it. Now, you were you working like when you started Walden? Was that like quit your job, or was it a, a side hustle while you had income coming in from other sources? It was a quit my job. I I can't do the side hustle. I'm just like a all or nothing type of person that 
uh, I, I firmly believe that if you want to grow something, you need to fully focus on it. Um, and so it, like, it's really hard to make progress for me, at least on a side hustle. Um, I think the reason why I was able to do it was because I just recognized that I was young and I could take this risk, right? Like at the time I wasn't married. Uh, I, I don't have any kids right now. I didn't have kids at the time. Um, just like very low overhead and burn. And uh, I was like, okay, this is the time to take the risk, right? Like if I don't do it now, 10 years are going to go by and I'm just going to be in the same position that I'm in, just, you know, more senior and the stakes are going to get higher and it's going to be much more difficult to leave. And like, I, I'd rather build to a future where I, I'm stoked to live. To, like, I, I'm just stoked by my life um, and don't have to change anything because of my life circumstances, if that makes sense. Yeah, it definitely does. So you're on this trajectory then. What's next for Walden? So I, the TLDR, what's next is we're going to make a lot more products, a lot more categories that we are interested in. So just on our immediate roadmap, we have a lot more CD products coming out. Like I mentioned, a chair, uh, more floor seating, et cetera. Um, we're working on a really, really special product with um, uh, some various partners that I think is going to be a game changer. Um, it's like a portable breathing trainer, which we're really excited about. Um, so that's been like a full force effort. I think the product's going to be a really, really special. We're coming out with uh, like a series of guns, which are really fun. Uh, new incense burners. We're working on a sauna. Um, we're working with some really great partners that we're going to come out with soon. There's just a lot of really great stuff. Um, I mean, like the, the way that like you know we think about product development at Walden is we are interested in a mindful lifestyle. Like we want to create space for the self and. The center of that space is the cushion or the bench. And then we think about concentric circles around that. And so there's like aromatherapy, lighting, sound, just really all the senses. Um, and then just as, as we continue to like sort of fill the, 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 the categorically fill what we're doing, uh, we actually expand. So like eventually we'll do clothing, right? Like really well-designed clothing for uh, the home and, We'll do maybe yoga gear one day. Um, I think the brand is so extensible that we will make a retreat center. Like one of my dreams is to make a space for contemplation where folks can go. It's upstate New York. You go by yourself and you go to process something or you go to refresh and rejuvenate. And it's designed for individual contemplation. Um, so to me, that's on the roadmap as well. It's just we need to write, find the right partner. So if anyone is interested in partnering with us, please reach out. Uh, but yeah, we, have, we, we, we just we love product. We love meditation. We love design. And we're going to continue making the best products for it. And we're going to continue to uh, fund it with our free cash flow and with just our customers. And uh, like we, we are just extremely grateful for our customers because of that. Yeah. And the ability to onshore, you know, provide jobs in the U.S. and actually design and build products in the U.S., I think is really fantastic. 
And if you can bootstrap it and have free cash flow pay for most of it, then you can sort of take that long-term vision approach and design things and grow the business the way you want to, which I think is fantastic. So you ready for some rapid fire questions? 100%. All right, let's do it. Um, Most important skill for a young entrepreneur? Uh, say resourcefulness. Looking at your Instagram, I think you went to Tokyo, if I'm correct. If so, what do you like most about Japanese culture? I mean, I love Japanese culture. <laughs> you can tell by the aesthetic. Uh, a lot of my close friends are Japanese. Uh, I think specifically, um, what I love about it is this obsessiveness, right? Like this like really deep focus on uh, like just, I'm sure there's a word to describe it, but it's almost like this presence, right? Like in the thing that they're doing is like this focus on that thing to make it exceptional. Whether that's like the guy cleaning the stairs or it's the artisan making a pop. Um, Just like this insane focus on the thing that they're doing. Um, I mean, there's so many things about the culture that I love, but I think that's one of the roots that speaks to me. Yeah. Having spent two years in Japan, I'm trying to remember my Japanese. And the closest thing, ikagai, Japanese concept referring to something that gives you a sense of purpose. Maybe that's more of your driving. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when I taught kids, you get really, really good at something. You master it. It is, it is like the 10,000 hours on steroids is part of the culture that like when you're a baseball player, that's everything. If you're a tattoo artist, you have to go through apprenticeship and it takes years and years to master something. Um, you know, Jiro dreams of sushi. Uh, I think it is, is a great testament of that. Like someone who's devoted their entire life to his small Michelin starred sushi restaurant that you've just become an absolute master of, of a task. Um, I think you own a one wheel. Is that correct? No, I love my one wheel. <laughs> is that the best way to get around Brooklyn? How do you know I own a one wheel? I I do I do research. Uh, I think I saw on your Instagram you posted something in the office and a one wheel was sitting there. I have a one wheel. I love it. <laughs> oh, I'm stalking so you, man. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, I love, I love my one wheel. I just roll around town. Uh, I roll around town on a one wheel. <laughs> It's the best way. Some funny I mean, photos. It's, it's fucking. It's amazing. Oh, it's great. I mean, do you uh, do you have the pint or do you have the full size one? I actually have the pint X and I have the GT. Yeah, Basically, I have the GT. Was, yeah, the GT is good. I mean, I had a, I had the XR Plus, and it got stolen. Then I bought a pint X on. Uh, I bought a pint X. It got stolen as well. Then I got a GT as a gift and it's just like, it's like a beautiful, it's like a really nice piece and it's just very, but it's very heavy. It's like very expensive. And so I bought a used Pine X to like go back and forth to my, to the office, my apartment. And I'm like a little less precious with it. Um, and so I actually like really enjoy having both. You know? Yeah, I had a super 73. I still do. And as a bike, it's not that great. Like the one wheel is just so versatile. It gets uphill. It's fast. It feels like snowboarding. I absolutely love mine. 
and I mean, uh, it is an awesome way of getting around its city. Yeah, I mean, I like my brother and I actually for the past couple of years have been working on like a passion project to uh, make an electric two wheeler that's the ultimate vehicle for getting around the city. Um, and so that's been fun. Like, I, I just love transportation, non cars, etc. Are you guys just always designing products? Like, it's just if it sounds to me like that's in your blood, and yet you're always tinkering and, and looking at designing new things. Did I get that right? Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, we love we love making things. Uh, it's yeah, it's just like it's my happy place. Um, it's like working with folks on cool, fun ideas and like thinking through things and actually seeing that thing exist. Um, you know, I, there, there was like, there, there's that Steve Jobs quote around the world, like the, the products that we use, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, right. But like the world was created by folks that are not that much, like they're just like you. Right. And like, if you just do it and learn how to do it, you can actually shape the way like, you can shape the world. And so that's been deeply inspiring and, um, empowering, right? It's like if there's something that I use or think about or have experience with, like just default action of like I feel like this thing could be better, and you know, and so like wait, let's let's make it better. Yeah, it's very rewarding when you can bring it to market and people like it. I know that story. Favorite film you've seen recently? Favorite film. Um, So I just watched The Whale, and then I just watched this uh, film called Rodeo, which is about, like, it's a French film around underground, like, dirt bike racing. Um, I think my favorite film that I've seen recently is, there's, like, a David Bowie documentary called Moon Age Daydream, just, like, so so epic, psychedelic, it's cool, it's, like, I don't know, I just, I loved it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Darren Aronofsky, so I have to see The Whale. And yeah, obviously, Brandon Fraser's performance is incredible. Um, so final one, uh, book recommendation can be anything, entrepreneurship or not. Uh, <laughs> a pretty transformative book for me was Seeking Wisdom. Uh, it's about like Charlie Munger's philosophy. Um, the author is Peter... Evelyn. Um, it's also like poor Charlie's almanac, uh, Nassim Taleb, like he's a great writer. Um, Fool by randomness is fantastic. Yeah. I was like weirdly inspired by a lot of the value investors in college. Um, even though I'm not like an investor, just like a way of thinking. Uh, Autobi- like, I'm trying to just thinking for more more books that I've read that I really like. The Mind Illuminated is a really good book on meditation. Um, I'm a big fan of the conceptual photographer Sophie Call, a conceptual artist, and she has like these incredible uh, like books that she's she's come out with. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's good for now. Well, I think seeking wisdom is a good one to end on because this is wisdom.mba 
And we're always looking for wise insights. And Eddie, I think you've provided us with many of those. I really appreciate you taking the time and encourage people to go to walden.us and keep an eye on your mindfulness lifestyle brand that you're building. Uh, Wish you all the success and appreciate you making the time to chat with us today. Totally. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at EC and Walden. We're at Walden. I still can't believe, you know, I ride one wheel. It's so funny. <laughs> I do I do the research. It's easy to just basically, you can see there. And Instagram is always a good place to start because visually it uh, it tells a lot about a person, I think. so. I post a lot yeah. of weird things on Instagram, so I can't, I'm so happy you didn't mention some of the other things. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. <laughs>